from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, as the Trump administration pursues a coup in Venezuela and futile plans for a border wall, it defies a judge's order to reunite hundreds, if not thousands, of migrant children illegally seized from their parents. The narrative of there's a crisis at the southern border, I feel like we're talking about very different things. When the Trump administration talks about a crisis, all I can think about is the crisis that they are creating by A, taking these children from their parents, or by B, not allowing people in to apply for asylum when it's legal to. And activists in Maryland are arrested as part of a two-year campaign to create a memorial for an African burial ground desecrated and paved over by developers. So isn't this an opportunity for Montgomery County to show that we really appreciate the Africans who were kidnapped in Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast and really build a proper memorial on River Road to all of those souls who were never able to return home and to be reunited with their families. These stories, voices, and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, legislation for a Green New Deal to transition the United States to 100% renewable sources by 2030 was introduced Thursday by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey. The proposal, which calls for a national mobilization, is being hailed by climate scientists as the first legislation that begins to meet the scale of the planet crisis with a large-scale response, creating good-paying jobs, upgrading all buildings in the country for energy efficiency, and overhauling transportation systems to reduce emissions, including expanding electric car manufacturing, building charging stations, and expanding high-speed rail to a scale where air travel stops becoming necessary. Ocasio-Cortez and Markey stress how all Americans would be aided by a mass mobilization to change how energy is created. This is a big day for activists all over the country and for frontline communities all over the country. Today is a big day for people who have been left behind. Today is a big day for workers in Appalachia. Today is a big day for children that have been breathing dirty air in the South Bronx. Today is a really good day for families who have been enduring the injustices of drinking dirty water or who have seen their living rooms being flooded in with the the waves of uh, rising sea, sea levels. And today, I think, is a really big day for our economy, the labor movement, the social justice movement, indigenous peoples, and people all over the United States of America. The legislation, which is in the form of a resolution, received a dismissive response from Republicans and corporate Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who referred to the measure as a, quote, green dream or whatever they call it, end quote. But supporters of the proposals told reporters that they believe the Green New Deal is the type of legislation that will get voters motivated to come out to the polls in 2020. And speaking of 2020, in a preview of how Russia hysteria will continue with corporate media's coverage of the presidential race, the popular anti-war presidential candidate Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat of Hawaii, has already been smeared by NBC News as being favored and backed by Russia. 
The story, which went viral but has been debunked by investigative journalists, uses as a source the discredited company New Knowledge, which fabricated Russian troll accounts on behalf of the Democratic Party in the Senate race in Alabama. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for more international news or just news about this week, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I know that you must have watched the State of the Union address. Lots of news has come out of it. But what was your take? Well, the reaction was predictable. The GOP base loved it. Uh, Those not in the GOP base despised it. It was clearly the opening shot in the 2020 presidential election, particularly the baiting of socialism by the 45th U.S. president. Now, many on the left thought that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, this would mean a cessation of red baiting and socialist baiting. Apparently, they were wrong and apparently did not realize that red baiting and socialist baiting reflected more of a fear that socialism would mean empowering those at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid who are disproportionately black and brown and thus would be counter to the white supremacist origins and trajectory of this former slaveholders republic. Now, that's not the only wrinkle in Mr. Trump's words. Uh, For example, before denouncing socialism, he preceded that denunciation with a denunciation of Venezuela. Now, this leaves Democratic Party elites in a contradictory position. I'm speaking of people like Dick Durbin, the number two leader in the U.S. Senate, and Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee, because many, like Durbin and Schiff and those of that ilk, have denounced Trump as a fraud, a con man, possibly the agent of a foreign power, yet they're going to follow him blindly into regime change overthrow in Caracas, Venezuela, even though this will bolster the anti-socialist propaganda line of Mr. Trump and harm Democratic Party electoral chances in 2020. Now, sadly, I'm afraid to say that, unfortunately, it's not only Democratic Party elites who are miscalculating. Some on the left continue to argue that 2016 was an era since Supposedly, the Donald J. Trump base was largely a Bernie Sanders base and somehow defecting to right-wing populism of Trump after left-wing populism of Sanders did not prevail over Hillary Rodham Clinton was the explanation of 2016. Now, this supposed analysis doesn't explain why there have not been more defections from the Trump base since November 2016 even in the wake of this government shutdown. Uh, His base is holding steady, despite the fact that the Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday, February 7th, that bankruptcies in farmland and the agricultural belt of the Midwest are skyrocketing like crazy in light of Trump policies concerning tariffs and then retaliatory tariffs by countries like China, the soybean market. And in any case, Uh, What's striking is that 
this supposed explanation of 2016 doesn't explain why the black working class and middle class uh, voted against Mr. Trump nine to one, uh, even though they were subjected to the same propaganda and electoral pressures as those who voted for Mr. Trump in 2016. In any case, uh, just a few days ago, Gideon Rockman of the Financial Times of London argued that we should not see Trumpism as a temporary phenomenon. He suggested that it may last for decades. Now, he did not explain adequately, in my opinion, why that's the case. But it seems to me, as long as these miscalculations persist by Democratic Party elites and even our friends on the left, uh, Mr. Rockman has a chance of being proven correct. And in any case, Paul Krugman of the New York Times, just a few days ago in arguing why he was opposed to the independent run of Howard Schultz, another Seattle billionaire, he of Starbucks, who's undergoing some sort of midlife crisis, and he's going to resolve his by running for president, unlike his neighbor, Seattle Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's resolving his by uh, seeking a divorce and having affairs. But in any case, uh, Paul Krugman argued that it's more likely that a successful third-party candidate in the United States would not be one like Howard Schultz of Starbucks. It would be more like a 21st century version of George Wallace. Recall that George Wallace was the former segregationist Alabama governor who challenged Richard M. Nixon for the White House. In other words, uh, Mr. Krugman is suggesting that a true right-wing populism is more likely to succeed either than the billionaire fantasy of Howard Schultz or the fake right-wing populism of Donald J. Trump. In other words, it seems to me at least that unless the anti-Trump coalition stops handing anti-socialist victories to Mr. Trump by following him blindly into Venezuela, and unless those to their left come to grips with the rather difficult reality we actually face in this country, it appears that Mr. Trump might still be in the White House as of January 2025. I also noticed that he, contrary to reality, said that the United States had the hottest economy on earth. <laughs> I think a few economists raised their eyebrow when they heard him say that. Well, clearly. I mean, China had a slowdown, which means its economy grew at the rate of 6.6%. Now, of course, uh, there are those in the United States who would sell their firstborn in return for the U.S. economy growing by 6.6% as opposed to the 2 to 3% that the U.S. economy traditionally grows when it's on an upturn. So that, so that was just one of many uh, lies, quite frankly, that Mr. Trump told uh, just a day or two ago. And then the other thing that, you know, since we're talking about Venezuela, I wanted to point out to you that Facebook is banning an important article by the Cuban newspaper Granma, which was a solidarity article. I think the article, title of the article was Venezuela is not alone. And if people attempt to either post a link to the article on the Granma website, or they attempt to share a link, they say that this violates Facebook's community standards. <laughs> so we've been having these ongoing conversations about these large social media corporations like Facebook and Twitter basically being in the back pocket of the U.S. government. And they've had a extreme reaction to being accused of being tools for this so so-called Russia interference in the 2016 election. 
And what we're seeing right away is a, a, a continuation of their reflexive actions, which have been to basically punish the left, to go after alternative and progressive voices, and to basically ban their pages. And now we're seeing that whole narrative extend from Russia to say that Venezuela is now, you know, abusing social media and and having these types of pro-Venezuela messages and articles taken down? Well, two points. One is that it's clear that Facebook is desperately in need of government regulation, if not severe government intervention. And if that does not take place, these kinds of outrages will continue to persist. Second of all, one of the things I've noticed about U.S. press coverage of Venezuela is that oftentimes the mainstream media, the corporate press, will have a map of the world showing, of course, Russia and China on the side of the Maduro regime in Venezuela and Canada and the United States, etc., Brazil on the side of the opposition. But Africa is not included on those maps, interestingly enough not least because countries like South Africa are adamantly opposed to this regime change agenda. And rather than take that into account, they're basically just omitted, deleted from Mm -hmm. world affairs and world discussion, which is just one more outrage amongst many. Right. And similarly, even though they tout the support of the right wing countries in Latin America that are part of this so-called Lima group, They don't talk about the fact that they could not get, I think, a majority of the OAS, the Organization of American States, to back this illegal intervention and attempted coup. And also, I believe, just like Africa is ignored, I think CARICOM is ignored. Exactly. Right. uh, The all the Caribbean nations that are adamant. You don't hear those voices. You don't hear. The voices of very important people who are an important part of our hemisphere. One more point on that. Another issue you did not hear in this debate is the fact that ExxonMobil has discovered, quote unquote, five billion uh, barrels of oil off the coast of Venezuela. This is in disputed territory contested by Guyana, Venezuela's neighbor and Venezuela itself, the opposition has made clear that they'll be more favorable to ExxonMobil's claims than the Maduro regime, which gives more impetus to Mr. Trump's push for regime change in Caracas, in other words, to execute the ExxonMobil agenda. And this is one more question that needs to be posed to Dick Durbin, the number two leader in the U.S. Senate, and Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, as to why they find it necessary to tail after Mr. Trump in this regime change fantasy. Well, uh, I can report that there were mobilizations on the left here in D.C. this week opposed to these uh, attempts at an illegal coup and these draconian sanctions and threats of military intervention. James Early, Danny Glover was here, and there's a demonstration being planned for mid-March. I'm thinking it's March 16th, and the Answer Coalition and some other organizations 
are mobilizing in that way. So, you know, in terms of staying positive and staying active and not just accepting this continued illegal operation, that's something that's happening. Here, here. <laughs> okay. Well, aside from saying that, I'm just so conscious of living in a rogue <laughs> nation, you know, we'll just have to keep watch and, you know, see what there is to discuss next week. <laughs> I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, fighting to save an African burial ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on the groundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. 
I'm Esther Averam. Well, the David versus Goliath fight to save and memorialize an African burial ground in the D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland, reached a pivotal point on Wednesday when protesters were arrested for a second straight month at a meeting of Montgomery County's Housing Opportunities Commission. Activists were infuriated by statements from commission members indicating that the commission had given itself and the Montgomery County Parks Department authority over plans to memorialize the historic Moses Cemetery, a site where historians say that hundreds of both enslaved and freed Africans were buried. Over the decades in this affluent city, property owned by African Americans was seized, taken over, or in some cases stolen outright by developers. The cemetery was reportedly desecrated with gravestones dug up and some human remains discarded in the 1960s. Some of the former cemetery was paved over for a commission-owned affordable housing development and a parking lot that exists to this day near Macedonia Baptist Church, one of the oldest historic black churches in Montgomery County dating back to the 1920s. The Macedonia church community and activists, which have forced the county to admit that the burial ground ever existed, say that Macedonia Baptist Church should have authority over both the land and any plan to create a memorial, which they want to be a museum. Here are some of the voices speaking out on behalf of the Moses Cemetery at the Wednesday, February 6, 2019 meeting of Montgomery County's Housing Opportunities Commission. So first of all, let me just sort of thank everybody for coming. I really appreciate your participation. There were a couple of things that I'd like just to to make an announcement about. First of all, it was a total and complete surprise today in terms of what Jackie Simon said. Jackie Simon actually made the statement that the commission has decided that it will not transfer the land to Macedonia Baptist Church. This is the first time we have heard this message. And for us, it's completely and totally unacceptable because we found out a couple of days ago that secret meetings were being held about Macedonia Baptist Church and about the land, but no one invited us to those meetings. So people are still making decisions about our community without consulting the people who live in those communities. And we consider that totally and completely unacceptable. So we are going to continue this struggle. As you know, two people were arrested, taken into arrest um, a few minutes ago. Reverend Shagun Adebayo, uh, he is the pastor of Macedonia Baptist Church. And uh, Jeffrey Slavin, who is the mayor of Somerset, which is a subdivision within Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, Jeffrey is also an elected official of Montgomery County. Uh, He sits on the Democratic Central Committee. So next month we will continue this process uh, until HLC decides that it is going to stop desecrating Moses African Cemetery, and we're going to continue to grow this campaign. We're also going to begin to grow this campaign out because we know that what's really enabling HLC uh, to continue this kind of horrific activity is because they're associated with two banks. One is PNC. Uh, We've met with the president of PNC, and we're in touch with the CEO of PNC. The second is United Bank of Virginia. 
United Bank of Virginia provided the $20 million loan so that they could buy the African Cemetery. And so now we, we have sent a letter to, um, to United Bank basically also demanding that they stop funding this kind of horrific activity. Um, but banks have had a long history in this country of funding human trafficking. It, without the banking system in the United States, so-called slavery could not have taken place in the United States. Banking was at the center of the American slave trade. And we see that PNC and United Bank are still active in this kind of horrific activity. And so, so if we don't sort of get the answers that we need here, we will start a national boycott of PNC and United Banks because we think the entire country should know about how these people are trading in African remains. So um, I wanted to also introduce... Um, would you like to say something? Sure. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. In the last campaign, my friend Mark Elric and I stood up for the Macedonia Baptist Church and the African American Cemetery. I'm convinced that his heart is in the right place, and I hope that he does the right thing, as he said he would do during the campaign. We need to draw contrast here in Maryland and in Montgomery County as to how we treat our African-American forefathers and foremothers. I look at what's happening in Virginia where they are, they are treated with derision. We don't do that here in Montgomery County. We treat our forefathers and foremothers with respect and we treat the, those that we associate with in everyday life with respect. Mark Elric will do the right thing, and he will push to see that this cemetery is turned over to the Macedonia Church and that the museum is built. I'm confident he'll do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Tim Willard, he spoke earlier during the program. He was basically, basically countering the what we call pseudo-history that was also presented today. Would you like to say something? Um, could you talk a little bit about this um, this space that we're talking about, how big the lot is, and like a little bit of that type of history? When was it paved over, stuff like that? Um, it was, uh, it's like, I believe it's seven-tenths of an acre. It's lot one, parcel 175, it w and it was paved over, well, it, in the 1960s. 1965. 1965, yeah. Um, and uh, the people who bought it knew that it was a graveyard because w we have people who grew up there who said, you know, they used to play there as kids and they saw the, they saw the gravestones there. And they said when, when it was paved over, they just they dug a big trench and dumped all the gravestones in it and covered it over. So they had no regard for it as a cemetery or as a sacred place. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, the HOC has, is basing all of its um, decisions on a flawed piece of history that was written by David Rottenstein, which tries to argue that the Macedonia Baptist Church had nothing to do with the cemetery. When the church was located right adjacent to the cemetery, when the people who owned the land in the cemetery, their families were all members of the church. And uh, even people who were buried in that graveyard, the few we've been able to track down, 
their families were members of the, the Macedonia Baptist Church. So it's just ridiculous to say that the Macedonia Baptist Church had nothing to do with that cemetery. But is there any evidence that shows that the, the property owners of the, of, the, of the Macedonia Church also owned the, the property that no, the cemetery it, is? No, it was owned by a separate institution, White's Tabernacle Number no. 39. That um, It was one of many... African American self help groups that um, you know they bought the land they uh, they would members would you know pay a little bit and then they would be guaranteed that they would have a, a burial place. They originally had land in D.C. but in the Tenley Town area, but uh, as urban renewal pushed the African-American community out. They bought this land out here in River Road, and uh, the, the Rock Creek Baptist Church sort of had to move as well. So is the question of ownership, it was never owner owned by any of the churches, but the, the, the um, White's Tabernacle was affiliated with the, the church in D.C. originally, and and then their members moved out to Rock Creek Church, and they became members of the Macedonia Baptist Church. So they were affiliated with the church. They did, the church never owned the land, but they were affiliated with the group that did. And the Macedonia Baptist Church is the last institution that remains that that, that has any. Um, relationship to the cemetery. And before that, this land was used as quote-unquote a dumping ground because remember along River Road you have a series of what people like to call plantations. They were really death camps because the lifespan of someone on these plantations was only about 10 to 15 years. So these were really death camps. And so when people died on these in these death camps, they were basically dumped into this area, into what we now call the Moses Cemetery. Uh, these were not American citizens. These were citizens from Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast and Togo and Cameroon and Congo. And they were dumped into this place. And so one of the reasons why whites decided to buy this property is because they knew this was already a cemetery. So after emancipation, they basically bought the black cemetery where people were already buried that they knew of. And that's how whites decided to buy this particular plot of land. So it wasn't like farmland before. It was a cemetery before that time. So this is really a very sacred place. And if you think about Normandy, which I think is a good correlation for this place, where American soldiers died in Normandy, and then the French government decided to really um, honor those Americans who had died fighting in World War II, and they have this beautiful memorial in Normandy. But we haven't done the same thing for the Africans who died in this country during slavery. So isn't this an opportunity for Montgomery County to show that we really appreciate the Africans who were kidnapped in Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast and really build a proper memorial on, on River Road to all of those souls who were never able to return home and, be re, and to be reunited with their families. So this is really a South-South kind of situation where you have Africans in, buried in, in this plot of land who were kidnapped. And then you also have people who survived slavery 
after post emancipation who are also buried in this cemetery. So you really have a south south situation. You've got Africans and you have African Americans buried in the same plot of land. So so I would just ask you if this was in Europe, like in Normandy, you know, the French have have really painstakingly taken care of these American remains in France. We did so we should do the same thing for the Africans who suffered so much in Bethesda, Maryland. And we need to have like a Normandy type memorial on River Road for these black people who suffered so much in life but didn't survive the effects of white supremacy. What's and the next step for the BACW? Well, we are going to work with um, our county executive. Um, and we're going to have a meeting hopefully tomorrow morning because the first phone call I'm going to make when I leave here is to Mark Elrich. Because I need to understand why they are announcing that a decision was made that Macedonia will not receive this property. And I, I want to understand also why the Park Service has been chosen to receive the property when the Park Service and the Planning Board has been at the center of desecrating black communities. Why are we turning over this, proper, this property to the very institutions that have a long history of desecrating black communities, gentrifying black communities, tearing black communities apart? And now you're going to provide the land, these sacred souls, to the very institutions that have a long history of desecration. It makes no sense at all. So, so the only institution that has never betrayed those souls is Macedonia Baptist Church, and they deserve the right to memorialize these African souls. So we're going to continue to fight for this because this is really at the heart of white supremacy, that black people are never at the table, that we're always sort of the, the, the last resort. We're the ones that you tell. Uh, we're, we're, we, are the, we are the targets of the decision-making, but we're never at the table to make the decision, and that's what, that's what was happening in the room today. I know you've been doing your own separate historical research. Do you, does your organization have any sense of how many people were buried in the plot? We, 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 we believe between 1911 and 1965, there are about 500 souls in that plot. First Africans in Jamestown? 1619. Yeah. 1619. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so let's assume that the plantations or whatever, death camps start around 1620 or 1650 on River Road. So from 1650 until 1865... With an average lifespan of about, you know, on these plantations or death camps of about 10 to 15 years, there could be thousands of people in there. And uh, this particular land in Montgomery County, before the Civil War, it was tobacco plantations, and they did own slaves there. And we believe there is evidence that they did bury people in this general area, because this area of River Road... This was marshland. This was bad land. And that's, of course, why it got sold to African Americans because, you know, uh, they always got the worst land and somehow managed to thrive on it. But we believe that there were bodies buried there probably even before the Civil War. And there were family plots after the Civil War. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to document the history of minorities and the poor. So it's impossible to say how many. many but we have evidence that there have been burials going, on, burials going on there for a long period of time. Why do you think this, um, this plot of land is, is so important to the HOC at this, at this time? Well, they took a loan. It sounds like there's been a parking lot there for like almost 50 years. 
Why do I think it's so important? I think this is a money issue, quite frankly. Uh, HOC just just took a, a mortgage out for twenty million dollars, twenty point five million dollars, and so I think this is really profit for, for that plot of land. For this plot of land, which also includes the West Towers, okay. Westwood Tower, Westwood Towers. So I think this is so for them. That's why one of our speakers talked about what is sacred. I mean, is it money? What, what is your God? Is it, is it money? Is it, is it family, right? So I think one of the things that uh, HLC is trying to do is protect their investments. Be, but, but the problem is that they knew this was a cemetery before they took the mortgage out. You were just listening to Marsha Coleman Adebayo, Tim Willard, and Robin Ficker speaking Wednesday in support of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition's effort to create a memorial museum to mark the location that has been paved over as a parking lot where hundreds if not thousands of Africans and African Americans were buried before and after the Civil War in Bethesda, Maryland. A statement released by Montgomery County's Housing Opportunities Commission after Wednesday's meeting said, quote, The Macedonia Baptist Church has requested that HOC turn over Parcel 175 so the church can build a museum. Parcel 175 provides Westwood Tower residents only access to building parking, and HOC does not propose turning over the parcel. However, HOC strongly believes there are a range of viable options for memorialization, including the park and memorial currently proposed within the West Bard sector plan approved by the county council. For their part, the activists reject a different site for the memorial and museum because no other site marks the actual location of the burial ground. They say that parking can be accessed for the apartment building from a different location. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverm. When we come back, the Trump administration defies an order to reunite all migrant children with their parents. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the Trump administration said in court filings on February 1st that it will be impossible to reunite thousands of migrant children who are separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border. The administration said that it does not have the so-called proper resources to find the children and even claimed that it would be too traumatic to remove the snatched children from their new homes. Joining me to discuss this true ongoing humanitarian crisis is Ophelia Calderon, a Virginia-based attorney who is on the Advisory Council of the Legal Aid Justice Center, a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and the National Immigration Project. Welcome back to On the Ground, Ophelia. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, this is such a horrific crime that is ongoing, and it seems like more and more unreported after the administration was ordered to reunite these families. What is your reaction, first of all, to what was revealed in this court filing? Well, I mean, I want to tell you that I'm surprised and shocked, et cetera. I mean, I, I just... I can't. <laughs> I'm shocked to the extent that it is shocking to my conscience that this has happened in the United States, that we have these children and their parents who've been separated. But I guess I'm not that surprised. This filing was done in response to the lawsuit brought by the ACLU challenging the administration's policy that separated these children from their families. One of the statements in this court filing from the United States, the Trump administration, said that thousands more children had been separated than even had been previously acknowledged. It also didn't dispute that separations might be ongoing. Yes, that's true as well. I mean, obviously there was a a big brouhaha last summer when it came to light that they were using this strategy in an attempt to, obviously, I think in an attempt to punish would be asylum seekers and their families from and, um, for coming to the United States, and probably they saw it, continued to see it as some sort of deterrent, and and so that came up, and then there was obviously the numbers that came out of that. Then there was the lawsuit by the ACLU, and then there were numbers that were that were provided by uh, DHS and ORR or the Office of Refugee um, Resettlement. Um, they are supposed to handle the housing of the children. And now we've, of course, discovered that there were many more children than they than they had originally indicated. And then we also have discovered, of course, that despite the outcry and then allegedly stopping of that policy, that they have continued to separate children from their parents. Looking at this from the legal side, what can be done at this point? Is the ACLU lawsuit the primary vehicle to address the, these injustices right now? Is there any other international body that is looking at this and that can be appealed to? Well, I think that in the U.S. it makes sense to to use the, the ongoing ACLU lawsuit as the vehicle to continue pushing the government to provide information and to continue pushing the government to some sort of accountability. And I say that because a new lawsuit, which is fine. I mean, I wouldn't discourage people from, from um, filing lawsuits against the government if they find that they have um, a claim or a cause of action that's different from the one that the ACLU has put out there. But what I think about it is that this, this lawsuit has been in place, has been, the ACLU has been working on this issue since last summer, and as a result of that, 
I guess this is the summer of 2017, actually. Um, as a result of that, they've been working on these issues. They know the issues, um, and they can continue to bring themselves before a judge, and that judge can continue to request or demand accountability from the U.S. government right now. Um, as for international bodies, obviously, I, I mean, there are international bodies. I'm sure that people are thinking about what type, which, how, and what types of international law the United States government has violated in separating these children from their parents, and I'm sure that somebody is considering what type of international action they can take in, for example, uh, the courts of the UN, in the International Court of Human Rights, that sort of thing, or even the Inter-American Court since we're on this side. I don't have knowledge of that at this time, and I'm not, I myself as a practitioner am not engaged in that type of litigation. I follow the ACLU case because, of course, I was in Texas last summer, and I continue to follow this case closely. What are the numbers now? Initially, there was a figure, I think it was somewhere between four and 5,000 children could have been separated. And I, I've seen other numbers that are closer in the two to 3,000 range. In terms of the number of children impacted, what do we know? Early on in the lawsuit, the government said they had identified more than 2,700 children who were separated under the policy. Then after that, there was a report where that number had doubled. And based on the most recent information, I don't think we know. And I think that's really shocking, right? I mean, I think the fact that we don't know what this number is, is terrifying because I don't know how you count down. You know, if you had a number like 10, for example, just to use as an example, you know you're looking for 10 children and you're like, okay, I found one. All right, now we're only looking for nine. Okay, I found one and now we're only looking for eight. If we don't have that number, I don't know what kind of accountability we can ask for or how sure we can be that we're able to identify every single one of these missing children. I wonder if the opposite can be done. If either attorneys, uh, human rights organizations can identify parents to come forward to say that their child was taken from them. You know, so, I, mean, I mean, for sure, I haven't come across that personally. With the cases that I took out of Texas, those cases, you know, we were able to identify the location of the children. We were able to reunite them. I feel confident that any attorney who comes across a parent who comes in and is either somehow released or is represented while detained, I feel confident that that parent will indicate to their attorney, hey, listen, I'm missing a child in which case I think attorneys will come forward and be looking for that child and either bring it to the attention of the ACLU to be added as a part of that class member of that particular class and or just for purposes of finding out how to locate the child because one of the results of the lawsuit, of course, is allegedly that the ACLU is also tracking, you know, tracking that on their side, right? What I think is going to be the biggest problem with, for parents are we don't know how many children were separated from their parents. We also don't know many, how, how many of those parents were subsequently deported. Right. So trying to access those parents seems infinitely more difficult since we don't even know where they are. Exactly. Because so many people were just deported right. and maybe we can, to Mexico when they're not maybe even Maybe to Mexico, Mexico, maybe Honduras, maybe Guatemala, maybe El Salvador, maybe who knows. Right. Right. I mean, if they never got out of detention, then the chances of, you know, the chances of them continuing to be in the United States are low. 
Sure. Right? I mean, if sure. imagine if someone was taken into detention in August and we're already here in February and that person hasn't and that person wasn't released from detention, then that person and let's say that that person's claim was never heard, let's say that person wasn't able to pass a credible fear interview, then they would be deported. Oh, sure. And so sure. I don't know how would we how we would access that. In addition to there being ongoing separations and I, that seems like such a mild word i mean i just think that these, these children were basically kidnapped you know i i just separation just doesn't seem you know strong enough word to use but that's what we're saying in addition to this being ongoing apparently there's a maybe a large group of children that weren't counted because they were taken away from their parents before the official count began that's possible, although, I mean, as has been stated previously, the policy of separating families is not necessarily something that just started in the summer of 2018. It is something that I think had previously occurred, but just not in such large numbers. So it is absolutely not clear that those, those numbers were used. And then the fact of the matter is, is that the real brouhaha over this, the real upsetness took place in the summer of 2018. And so as it happens... For example, when I went to Texas in the in June, most of the people that I interviewed, so say of the like I interviewed maybe fifty people over a weekend, right? And those individuals of those people, they came in. I would say nobody, but for one, I think everyone had come in in June. There was one person I believe who had come in in May. So I would guess that the numbers that are were being counted were were being counted from that no earlier than June, and that there's probably a fair number of cases from earlier in 2018 that we're not aware of. So finally, what does this look like on the ground now? I I know that you were in Texas, either from your own personal experience or from, from your work with, you know, other attorneys. How does this translate on the ground, either in Texas or at these different facilities? What is happening to parents? What is happening to children right now? Well, I mean, the cases remain kind of in the same situation that they were in. The way that these cases are handled remain the same. I think we all assumed that they weren't separating them in that manner. Since they allegedly still are, then the children would go to our shelters. The parents will go to whatever facility. If they keep one parent and the children together and they do family detention, then they'll go to one of the family detention centers. That situation hasn't changed. I mean, we continue to detain immigrants, that's for sure. And while some people do manage to get released because they pass a credible fear interview or for whatever reason, because to be honest with you, sometimes I have to say that there doesn't necessarily seem to be any rhyme or reason for why people are released and why, why some people aren't. So there's that. Plus, I think, of course, a lot of the focus... There has been some shift in focus in particular, I think, for volunteer lawyers at the border. It's kind of hard to keep up on all of these crises. That's really the crisis, right? Kind of what you said about we keep using this word separated for something that seems so much more egregious, right? right. Um, I feel like when the, the narrative of there's a crisis at the southern border, I feel like we're talking about very different things, right? When the Trump administration talks about a crisis, all I can think about is the crisis that they are creating by, A, taking these children from their parents, or by, B, not allowing people in to apply for asylum when it's legal to. So you had that whole business where they were metering right, and not letting people in. And then now we have the Remain in Mexico policy, which is a whole other crisis, right? Exactly. So it's hard for lawyers who work on these issues to sort of figure out which, which fire do we need to be putting out right now. 
Well, you're also kind of dealing with the real world as opposed to a, a fictionalized one. You know, it's it's <laughs> you you are dealing with real lives, you know, real human beings often fleeing very, very dangerous situations or in the case of this remain in Mexico policy being forced into a dangerous situation that they did not ask to be in. And and, and you know, since you, you, you brought it up, it, it reminds me that so much of the discussion now has moved toward the so-called wall and whether this wall will be built and uh, that being the kind of discussion uh, as opposed to, you know, what is really happening down there. So, right. yeah, I, so. I think that's absolutely I mean, you know, you can use the word. I, I mean, I feel like I'm as, as you said, you, we can use euphemisms to discuss what's happening. But the reality is, is that the crisis that is currently at the southern border is not the crisis that is being purportedly report, reported by the Trump administration. The crisis is a crisis of human rights. Right, and that right. is a crisis, and it's real. Um, and the crisis is, you know, as I said, I I was there last summer, but a friend, a very good friend of mine, was there recently, was in the on the Tijuana side, and you know, was dealing with the situation. This is before Remain in Mexico, but it was when they were sort of metering admission. So you have this line of people who are attempting to apply for asylum, and yet they're all sleeping in these weird tent cities and outside waiting for their you know, just to come in, and they're just sort of, and the U.S. government is letting like a trickle in to do the very thing that is legal, which is to apply for asylum if you have a fear of persecution, right? Right. And now, of course, I, I'm sure you saw the big um, the situation with the, the director, the legal director, uh, director for El Otro Lado, which is an organization that works on those issues in, on the Tijuana side, and those lawyers are having difficulty, uh, well, I mean, were uh, reportedly deported from Mexico. So that is also a... Um, a factor for attorneys that want to do good work, it's, it's not easy, right? And this is another part of the crisis, right? You're actually creating a, a more difficult situation for attorneys to represent the people who need them the most. Okay, so tell people who are familiar with that story, you're saying that attorneys were there trying to help people and then they were deported. Well, American attorneys deported from Mexico back here, just sent back. Yes, that's well, exactly what I'm saying. American attorneys mm -hmm. deported from Mexico yes. back here, just sent back. Okay. Yes, so it was, <laughs> yeah, wow. exactly. It was actually, it was, it was early in this month. I can't remember exactly when, um, what the date was. It was either February, maybe it was really recently within the last couple of days or the right. last couple of weeks that this occurred, right? And, right. um, and so it, it's just significant when you think about it because as attorneys, and I think it's important to think about because, for example, with the Remain, I know I'm kind of all over the place, sorry, but um, the situation is kind of all over the place, right? Right. But when you think about the Remain in Mexico policy or even what you're talking about right now, right, with the children, that would require us as attorneys to leave the United States to best represent our clients. So let's say that somebody calls me and says, my child was, you know, I was separated from my child and, you know, I need assistance and they happen to be on the other side, you know, if I go over to the other side, I now face this, this potential problem, right? What if I'm deported for whatever reason? Because right. I, there's no good reason for what happened to the lawyers at El, uh, from Otro Lado. Right, right. So they're back here in the U.S. now. Wow. 
Okay, well, we will continue to watch this. The reports I saw said that the judge would be hearing the case on February 21st. Mm-hmm. Well, the, so, yes, the government will be back. Everybody will be back in front of the court on the 21st. Right. Okay. And so we will we will be, be back on the case at, on that date as well. <laughs> I want to thank my guest for joining me, Ophelia Calderon, Virginia-based attorney, who is on the Advisory Council of the Legal Aid Justice Center, a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and the National Immigration Project. Thank you for joining me today, Ophelia. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can subscribe to On the Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Nina Simone, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, and Stevie Wonder, Free. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. All right, peace. <laughs>